Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Breadcrumbs. Today, I am joined by the team from Operation Safe Escape. I've got Chris, Tony, Nick, Adam, and today we're going to talk about OSE, the mission, their upcoming fundraiser, and really what the organization is all about and how you could contribute to the mission if you so desire. OSE, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having us. Hello, hello. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for taking the time to hang out with me for, well, as long as it takes. No no one's leaving till I say we're leaving. That's how podcasts work. And we can edit it down into something that makes sense. Be here all night. <laughs> no, um, you're all people that uh, I know fairly well, at least as, at least as well as you can know people on the internet. Uh, some of you I've met personally. Um we, you know, we both work with organizations that hack for good, that OSINT for good. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of things in common, but also a lot of differences. Um, so it might be worth just just touching on, you know, what OSC does and then talk about like how that differs from Trace Labs, because not, you know, not all hack for good organizations are the same. You know, the missions are going to be the same. The mission requirements and the requirements of volunteers is going to be different. Um, so let's just start there. You know, what does OSC do? Yeah, no, thank you. So uh, Operation Safe Escape, so we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We've been doing this since about 2016 when uh, kind of started as a loose collection of individuals that got together to try to do some good in people's lives, um, specifically initially focusing on helping people to escape domestic violence, uh, how to plan their escape, how to recover after they do, and how to stay, how to stay hidden uh, when they need to. And since that point, we've expanded to also focus on stalking, harassment, and even human trafficking. Uh, since the time we've been doing it, we've been uh, we've helped almost four thousand people to escape and stay safe after they do. That's amazing. Um, to kind of contrast that to the Trace Labs mission, um, you know, we obviously, you know, if you're listening to this, this podcast, you know, we are focused on, you know, the, the crowdsourced collection of open source intelligence. And I believe with OSC, there is an OSINT component, but there's also so many other components. Do you want to touch on maybe some of the skill sets that your volunteers, you know, bring to the table? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So um, OSINT is is a huge part of what we do, just like the very important Trace Labs mission. Uh, but it's also only one part of what we do. So we, we try to look at security and safety from a holistic perspective. So when we're working with an individual that, for example, needs to leave an abusive situation, uh, we're looking at the OSINT piece is going to be huge and a part of every case that we have where we need to figure out what that person's exposure is. If they've moved to a, to a new place, they want to be safe. Uh, is it possible for the abuser to find out where they've gone? But at the same time, it's a matter of making sure that their apartment is secure, going through the physical security piece, making sure their uh, accounts are locked down so that the abuser can't get in or the uh, person, the stalker, the person that's looking for them can't get in and find their location that way or even just cause trouble for them uh, in one way or another. So we really focus on uh, all of the aspects of security and safety, trying to make sure that we cover it uh, for the individuals trying to get out. So it sounds like there are a couple different maybe areas of of safe escape or of making a safe escape. It sounds like there's there's the right now component, but there's also maybe an education component and also kind of a future plan component. Do you want to touch on maybe the the things that going that go into getting someone safe? 
Oh, absolutely. Because really, uh, it's not just about the individual. They're 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 the important piece that needs to stay safe. But it's also about their support system. Uh, it's also about the social workers, the safe houses, shelters that are trying to get them to a safe place as well. Uh, it's about law enforcement. It's about the the all the moving pieces that have to exist and have to really work together uh, better than historically they have been in order to make sure that someone can uh, get out safely. So one thing we really try to work towards educating uh, law enforcement and our allies and our partners, such as shelters, safe houses, advocacy organizations, about the different threats that are out there. Sometimes we're talking about something like stalkerware tools or other tracking tools where there might be the first time that uh, law enforcement, for example, has heard that this is a thing that they need to be worried about. So our education piece, our advocacy piece is a really, really big part of that. Uh, as far as what it takes to get a person out, one time we, we sat down and we kind of came up with a little flow chart of an average case and five or six pieces of paper tied together and or taped together and trying to make sense of it. We really realized that it's uh, it, it's complicated and there's definitely no one size fits all solution. So the first thing that we do, we have an amazing intake team that kind of gets in and triages and figure out figures out the person's specific threat model and what it is that they're up against. And then we start kind of planning out a, a individual solution that we can bring to that person. So um, in one particular case, it may be that not only do they need to get somewhere safe, but uh, we need to get our digital forensics team in play to get in there and establish for law enforcement. Yes, crimes have been committed. They have been hacked or they have been uh, listened in on or other, other digital crimes that have occurred so that we can get them the help that they need. Um, and it all ties together it, it, and it doesn't end when they're actually in a safe place. That's where it just moves into the next phase, because at that point we need to help them learn the skills to stay safe, to uh, not expose themselves on the Internet, to keep their accounts secure, because unfortunately there's really no one more dedicated than someone with a personal motive who's looking for an individual. That's the real that's the real APT. Nice. Um... I think everyone on this call uh, works in the information security industry, or at least has a tremendous amount of information security experience. Um, oftentimes in InfoSec or just in technology in general, we often talk about attack surface. Um, it seems like as technology grows and grows and grows, as the, the pace of technology gets faster and faster and faster, that attack surface is expanding far faster than, say, the support systems that would traditionally deal with that. Um, does someone on the team want to speak to, you know, what does surviving domestic violence or escaping domestic violence look like today compared to 20 years ago or even 10 years ago? Hey, Tom, I, I can ring it here. This is Nick. So although I would say my experience is not flow back 20 years i can tell you that i would say that with the digital age has got increasingly more difficult to fight a lot of the cyber threats that come out there i would say in general if you looked at maybe you know if, if we looked at from what i know from 20 years ago from what i've heard from folks that have struggled with domestic violence for that long you know more of it is uh, an attitude i would say that really didn't get changed until maybe 10 10 or 12 years ago meaning 
you know, the lack of trust uh, or they, they couldn't imagine that this upstanding citizen, you know, would do that to his wife or his kids or, you know, vice versa. I don't want to make it gender gender based because we do see uh, domestic violence on both, you know, both sides of the fence and every single gender in between. Um, but for the most part, I would say in today's day and age, you almost have to assume the worst and prove that all that stuff is not happening to really make sure that 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 survivor is really in the safest spot they can be. And I know you mentioned this before with education, but I would say that's that's the other thing I would say that would definitely be different from 20 years ago, whereas a lot of folks didn't necessarily have to understand the impact of the internet or social media or, you know, focus on a lot. Of, you know, back 20 years ago, I was back still in, in news boards and everything else, which is not like mainstream, uh, mainstream actual internet stuff uh, versus now where you can hop on Twitter and you can, go through Google and go through Facebook and pretty much find out just about everything you ever needed to know or didn't want to know about an individual. Uh, and that, and that's really the, the scariest part too. And that's almost one of the first things that we work, we work at inside of the intake team. Um, you know, you mentioned OSINT in the beginning too. We, we want to get an idea of what are we dealing with, even with the survivor, like what can we help clean up? You know, there's a whole process that's involved in there, you know, back 20 years ago, uh, I, I could only imagine probably be a lot simpler to to get off something nasty on the internet because it's probably a single person rather than an entity with you know policy and process and you got to have a lawyer and all the rest of stuff. But I would I would just say in general it's probably more difficult. But at the same time, uh, we have filled our stables with folks straight across the board. You know, you mentioned OSIN. I would you know we have physical uh, people that are in physical physical security. People that are in forensics, you know, ex-military folks, all, you know, three-letter agency people that we don't advertise. But there's a lot of things that we have that we can get a whole breadth of knowledge that is a conglomerate at this point um, that does that does kind of help serve the mission. Nice. And I would like the record to reflect that uh, Nick is so young, he can't remember what things were like 20 years ago. <laughs> I can how old. do you know I don't have a mental disorder? <laughs> yeah, that must be nice. <laughs> I have a, Twenty I have years ago, disorder. I was in middle school. Shut up, Nick. <laughs> Enjoy your knees school. while they last. I just graduated college. I saw oh, my it's the same thing. <laughs> um, no, um, I like that you hit on. Um, I think towards the beginning of your answer, you talked about trust and belief, and in my limited experience, one of the, the initial barriers that people in those situations face, if they are willing to ask someone for help, is being believed. Um, if they go to someone and say, oh, no, you know, I don't think your husband would ever do that, or I don't think your wife would ever do that, or I don't think your stepdad would ever do that. Like, being believed is oftentimes <clears throat> the first hurdle. And if you look at what's possible today it's almost harder to believe some of those things as an example. You know, if, if so, if someone came to you and said, I'm being physically abused by my stepfather, we would all give them the benefit of the doubt, say, okay, well, I'm going to look into this and see if that's true or not. That doesn't sound outside the realm of possibility. If someone came to you and said, my ex-boyfriend is deleting all my emails and they're listening to all my phone calls and they're sneaking into my apartment at night and they're talking to me on my Amazon Echo. That's like something you'd see in a movie. But 
We've seen so, that in Operation yeah. Safe Escape. Every <laughs> single one of those things is an example. This, this one rings in cl- incredibly close to home. So I'll, I'll share. I'll share when I was first starting out, and then everyone on this on this podcast can point and laugh at me, and then everybody else can have a laugh at my expense. Well, you know, hearing some of the stuff at this point, there's there's probably not much I haven't heard at this point but i will say in the beginning and not having been exposed to some of the things that could potentially be out there and and i will say that i i tend to just say let's put everything down and i'd like to use an analogy of a bookshelf believe it or not as lame as that sounds but i i call it clearing the bookshelf out is where they mentally dump out every single thing that they possibly think is happening and then that's our punch list like that's what we look at to do and we either want to prove or disprove the things and then try and gather evidence and be very you know, almost be very scientific toward that, even though some of the things are more of a feeling or, you know, they, they could boil down to even some type of, and I don't want to use, no, I, I would say even even some type of abuse that has just been almost like manifested a PTSD. Like not, not quite, it, it, it may or may not be happening, but there is also some type of psychological component too. Um, but I will say that at this point, I don't ever... I don't ever not accept what someone's telling me. I just sit there and I I know I will never tell them unless it's unless it really truly is something that is like very much far fetched, like having satellites tasked after me and they don't, you know, if they have a a husband or a wife that's, you know, in a branch of the government that has access to those, I'll put it into purview until we can, you know, we can prove it that that's not the case. You know, one of the ones I will say almost always comes up is, you know, the horrible horrible software called Pegasus, which I'm sure it's making everyone on this call cringe, everyone in this podcast cringe, everyone listening to this cringe, but it's always in the news. It, you know, that's a piece of software that is incredibly expensive. But the irony of the thing is that there's cheaper $10 off the shelf software that does almost the same thing. And that's spyware. Um, So, uh, you know, even though they might not be using the exact terminology and they might have said, hey, I know I have Pegasus, it's probably not Pegasus, but it's probably spyware or some type of malware that, you know, someone could have put in there. And that's so simple to do. I, I would almost say in today's day and age, we really don't, we, we try and strive away, especially even in the first meeting. Like I, I almost say, if you, if you try and debunk too much in the first time, they won't end up trusting you. You, you have to kind of approach it from the fact of everything's true and everything's real, whether, whether it is or not. And I hope to God, most of the stuff is not you know, some of the stuff we hear is horrible. I don't want it to be true, but if it is, we just deal with it. We put policies and processes in place. Like I'm sure most of us that are probably listening to this, they work in the industry or they work in a day-to-day company. It's very similar to working in a company in that aspect, meaning if you have an issue or a problem, if you approach it instead of uh, with emotions and feelings, which sometimes that's all you have, like it might be so, so horrible for you that that really is, you know, it's bad and you you don't know what to do. If you set up that policy or process for them, it almost becomes like second nature to where, you know, like some of the folks that I've worked with, they'll, you know, they'll they'll shoot me a text message or shoot me a message like, hey, this is going on right now. And I say, okay, cool. And then I'll run through that checklist with them. So whether they realize it or not, I'm still teaching them or educating them to say, hey, did you click on a bad site? Did you open a bad phishing link? Did you click on something else? And if they tell me no, then we go and take a step back and say, well, could this be something that is maybe, you know, maybe not there. Can we, can we put it on the shelf? And we, you know, that's where that shelf comes in. We put that book in there and it still, it still validates what they're saying, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily give, give all that power back to that person to struggle through it. 
So it's it's good or bad. Like I said, the the biggest thing is acknowledge that something's potentially going on and then just find a way to work through it with them. And eventually, and, and this has just been in my experience too. Most of the time we, we see most of the survivors kind of go through and they hit, they hit like that wall where enough's enough. And then you see them turn into like the, the super warrior, the super warrior form of them where it's like nothing bothers them anymore. And it's amazing. It's watching that shift. And then they go through all that, that change. And now they're able to handle it. And it's such a drastic difference for them too, where in the beginning it's, it's all doom and gloom for them. And we, you know, that's what we try and help and manage them through. And that was a long-winded answer, but. <laughs> but that was, a, that was a great answer. Um, you know, one of the things that Nick had said that kind of resonated is I'd almost say the biggest difference between the Pegasus developers and the Stalker developers that Pegasus, they're a little more ethical. I say that with my tongue firmly in my cheek, but um you know, at least there's there's some barriers to entry, whether it's financial uh, or or otherwise. But um, yeah, the stalkerware developers, um, you can go straight to their website and you can tell them, I want to use this to spy on my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, which is saying, I want to use your software to commit a major felony. And they will not only encourage you, but they will uh, help you to do it. What they won't do is when you, and I say you, meaning the hypothetical customer that's using this type of software, what they won't do is support you when you're arrested for committing that crime. Uh, they definitely um, don't do anything to dissuade people from committing these crimes. And at the same time, they definitely will cut them loose when, and it's happening increasingly, people are caught for it and prosecuted for it. Something Nick said really resonated with me, and that was the empowerment aspect. So hmm. just based off of what I know about maybe the the, the timeline of, you know, how, how you would work with a client, you know, it starts with just making them feel believed and listened to, um, but then ultimately giving them the confidence and the skills to not need you anymore. Um, do you want to speak to maybe that empowerment piece or, you know, how do you graduate someone for OSC or as, as I once said, OSC doesn't want repeat customers. <laughs> Sure. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I could I could take that one. Yeah, I mean, is it would it be horrible if if someone kept going through that same situation? Absolutely. Uh, I would say in general, you know, most of the time we want to almost get to the to a point to where they can empower themselves to do a lot of things. It's 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 really funny because a, a lot of the things we look back, and I'm not trying to say that I'm not trying to under undersell what we do as an organization either but a lot of the stuff we do is kind of lay down a plan like that's really that's really what it is like it's not exciting it's not it's not glamorous we don't have like this this gold shiny mallet that we just pound on a desk and then things go away on the internet it's you know the, a, a lot of the things that we do are are relatively simple but if folks are not aware of them it makes it drastically more difficult for them to escape these situations. Like a simple fact of, hey, did you know that your phone and most of your life, if you use an Apple ecosystem, is controlled through an iCloud account? That if your abuser has that iCloud account, it doesn't matter how many devices you get, you're using the same account. It doesn't matter how many MacBooks you, you swap out or you wipe, you're still using the same iCloud account. And that's kind of the same thing. Like what, what I usually see is most, most folks almost drop off from our help. Like you just see a drastic drop in them and them looking or leaning on us almost to the point where, and I, I never feel bad about that too. Like it's almost like kids, like if you've ever had kids, 
like your kids grow up, they go to college and they never come back unless they need money. <laughs> but for for the most part, it's almost it's almost what they go through and they they go through an education. But yeah, I mean, and and I will say even the question we talked about before from the twenty versus twenty years versus now, there is some truth to that. That if they do come back, you know, we we the the things we can't control is hey maybe they tried to fight for that marriage and you know they did all those things and learned the education but hey you know their spouse changed or their their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever changed and they came back we, we see that a lot of times too and it, it's hard for us because if if that if the survivor or the person that's in trouble is not really willing to escape that situation there's not a ton we can really do to help them so they haven't really gotten to the point of where it's you know the rock bottom or whatever other analogy you want to give them but more so, I'd say when you when you see them shift into, hey, I really don't need to lean on you anymore. I totally get this. This makes this makes perfect sense. We we have those policies and processes in place. You know, we've talked about email, phishing, multi-factor authentication. You know, YubiKeys, putting all this other stuff. You using your computers in a safe fashion. Um, it you you see that dynamic shift in them, and they really they almost gravitate toward, hey, what else is there to do? Or the other question I really like you know, what else would you do in my situation? And that tells me right now that they're almost like, there's not really much else for them to do because they're looking for more advanced things or more things down the road of what other things can I put as a roadblock? Now I'll pause there too. I don't know if anybody else has anything to, to throw in there. Well, yeah, I'll just say uh, one of the things that I think makes OSC very unique as an organization and what we do is it's kind of the intersection between advocacy and security and safety. Uh, so we're, we're a trauma-informed organization, but at the same time, a lot of the volunteers who are subject matter expertise, uh, all volunteer organization, by the way, um, none of us take a salary for, for doing this. Um, but so in our day jobs, a lot of the volunteers are subject matter experts in different security disciplines. And there's kind of, in a, in a boardroom, there's kind of a tendency to say, this is the right answer, this is what you must do or else we're gonna get fined, or else we're gonna get shut down, or other things like that. I'm not saying the C-suite always listens to that, but there's kind of uh, speaking with that sense of authority. But when we get home, or do this on lunch breaks, or whenever else time permits, and end up talking to survivors, you're talking to someone who's been told what to do for a long period of time, and not to their benefit, not to the necessarily to their benefit. Uh, so rather than having a choice, rather than having free agency, they're being told, you will go out at this time. You will not talk to this person. You will do this during the day. And they haven't really had the options of what to do. So one of the things that we do, and the team is amazing at this, is uh, it's twofold. One is helping to lead them towards um, the answers. So rather than necessarily saying that um, you're not being hacked yeah, and kind of building up that wall, there's often kind of almost like a, the Socratic method of saying, well, what would a hack look like? Let's look here, let's explore these things. And to try to help them to reach their own conclusions so they can feel feel comfortable with it. The other piece is that uh, the client's the boss, really. So when they come in and we'll say, here's what we think you should do, here's what would be safe, here's what we recommend. Um, sometimes, for example, the, there's issues with social media or Facebook accounts, what they're targeting. We would recommend that you disable Facebook for a period of time. Whereas if um, the person comes back and says, no, that's where my support system is. That's where the groups that I talk to are. I am not doing that. At that point, the focus shifts to whatever it is that however we can best protect them with the decisions that they have made with their with their sense of agency. 
I think one thing that Trace Labs, that Safe Escape, that I mean, probably any nonprofit, not even just an InfoSec or maybe a tech-leaning nonprofit, I think the thing that we all have in common is that all those organizations have, you know, like the hip, cool, some might even say sexy face of the organization, in this case, Chris Cox. Um, Being really generous. <laughs> I mean, well, I guess we we all know that Nick's the young one, so maybe it's Nick, but regardless. Um, there's an entire team of people behind Chris or behind even behind the behind the scenes um, doing a lot of very important work that the organization couldn't exist without. So in the case of Trace Labs, you know, I get to be the one making podcasts, but... There's a team of developers that stand up our CTF platforms. There are a team of people writing reports. There are people in the community. Um, There are people out there just maintaining relationships with law enforcement agencies. And you'll probably never hear from them. Um, You just have to hear from me, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) But I, I think, I think that that rings true for any, any, any nonprofit. And I always want people to understand that if you want to help bad enough, there's probably a place for you. Uh, do you want to speak to the breadth of maybe expertise that OSE, you know, brings into play? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> so thank you for asking that question. Um, there are, I, I, I like to think, uh, again, a little bit of tongue in cheek, a little bit of truth to this, that I'm probably the dumbest guy in the organization. Because uh, we sit on these calls and we come up with these, uh, these plans. I bring the problems. And then uh, the really, really smart people that are working often behind the scenes, often in these um, not expecting or asking for any accolades, um, come up with these solutions that just I just blow my mind. Uh, I'll give a perfect example, and I'm going to embarrass both Tony and Adam on this call, where uh, we had come through, and I'll kind of give a little bit of a spoiler here, a little bit of a sneak peek here. We had come through with a requirement to start doing some, what we're calling some um, uh, offensive intelligence or applied intelligence action. So basically kind of targeting some of the bad guys that we're interested in. And uh, we sat down on a meeting. We often have kind of this uh, this this weekly tech stand-up meeting. And as usual, I brought the problems. I said, okay, here's something that we need to figure out how to do. Uh, here's this impossible challenge that we need to bring. How can we do it? And then uh, these two here, they start... They start talking, and by the end of that call, there's a framework in place. And a week later, there's a prototype built. And a week after that, we're ready to start testing. And it just it it moves much faster than any other organization I've been, ever been a part of, for profit or not. Um, so the underlying tech piece that keeps us you know keeps us running and also keeps the client engagements secure um, that is so critical. Um, and in addition to that, the number of people that are on the team that just bring different skills to the table, uh, graphic designers, you have uh, copywriters, you have people um, that can just bring all these different perspectives, not just security ones, um, to bear is just is, is incredible. One thing that we've recently started focusing on are our very good friends and allies that are coming onto the team in the mental health field. Because not only for the well-being of the team and being able to have someone to talk to uh, to combat what we're calling vicarious trauma, um, but also just being able to help us bring more resources and information to the clients. So it's a very robust organization that um, all of those pieces just come together to form something great. 
if I can double down what Reese said. Hi, I'm Adam. I, as I say, clean the toilets once in a while in, in uh, a safe escape. <laughs> the type of challenges that volunteering for this organization brings for us non-security folks is fascinating. We have infrastructure, architecture, we have software engineering. Several cases require specific technical solutions to be spun up ridiculously quickly to be effective and to give the team the kind of tools they need to do their job. It is a fascinating organization to work for. I think that's a great segue into maybe just, just touching on volunteership. Um, the advice, I give people a couple different pieces of advice. Yeah, there is no shortage of, a, of advice coming from Tom, the podcast host tonight. Um, but one piece that I like to give is don't worry about what you maybe think your skills are and you know how those would be relevant to an organization. Find a cause that you're passionate about and find a way to contribute. So just well, because... Just because you're not a security person, just because you're not a tech person, you know, doesn't mean that you can't work with a safe escape style organization. Um, when I started with Trace Labs, I was Tom from Human Resources. And yet, you know, here I am, you know, hosting an OSINT focused podcast. Um, but I think it, it is worth calling out the the differences in maybe a Trace Labs versus a safe escape. So Trace Labs is wide open. Um, you can jump in our Discord, ask questions, be a part of the community. You can compete in CTFs. You can volunteer to be a judge on the back end. Um, the only barrier to entry is a web browser and just follow the rules. Um, but I, so I consider like Trace Labs like a gateway into Hack for Good or OSINT for Good or just volunteering your time in a meaningful way because pretty much anyone can do it. But that's not the case for every nonprofit every infosec nonprofit um ose um is going to be a bit more closed for reasons that are probably obvious to <laughs> everyone that's been tuned in for the last half hour or 45 minutes but would someone on the team want to talk through like what kind of a person um would be a successful ose volunteer are there some score are there, are there some core just intrapersonal skills or some core things that, you know, a volunteer would need to come with, even if they aren't a quote hacker? Um, yeah, so that, that's a great question. So thanks for asking that one. And the reality is, as I say, we, we do have a type. Uh, we're really looking for someone that comes with a sense of compassion and uh, kind of has that patience that it takes to work with someone that's been through trauma. Um, so we do have inter intra team trauma training and we do require uh, training, particularly given the roles. Uh, in fact, it's the same 80-hour course that we have available that um, uh, safe house and shelter directors take because we feel it's that important that no matter what we're bringing to the table with security, that we're also coming with a sense of compassion. So there's also a sense of a, a piece of patience that needs to take, take place, not only in working with the clients, but also going through the process. Uh, it takes a while to be an OSC volunteer. It's something that is definitely earned to a degree, and it's something that definitely someone has to want. Um, we do require, for example, double background checks for each person that comes in because we want to make sure that we're putting safe people 
in contact with the survivors that they work with. So not only criminal background check, but also an OSINT check as well, uh, going through to make sure that we're recruiting the right people. Um, what's a really interesting side effect of that is that sometimes that process can take a little bit of time, especially when we get a backlog of volunteers that are coming through. So what sometimes occurs is that if someone's going through the process and it's not being as quick as they'd like, uh, if they're coming at us with aggression or threats or insults, then we know there's probably not someone that would be well suited to work directly with a survivor. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that trauma changes the brain on a very real level. And so there are circumstances, and I think Nick would could definitely uh, agree to this, there are circumstances where you're working with someone that you want to help, and because of the trauma responses that are not their fault, uh, they may come back with insults, they may come back with aggression, they may, come, they may respond in ways that uh, a lot of us don't experience in our day-to-day -day or certainly our corporate lives. So someone that can understand that and still provide the quality of care that individual deserves, that's our type. So we've spent maybe a good part of, of this talk um, really coming from kind of a doom and gloom point of view, talking about this very real problem, how you know organizations like OSC are addressing this problem. Um, I'd like to steer us maybe into a more optimistic direction. And I say optimistic because in my experience with OSE, these abusers don't have magical powers. They just know something or they know a little bit more about something than the people that they're abusing. And that's ultimately the mechanism of their control. Um, once, you know, once an organization like OSE or even just somebody else helps that survivor realize it's not magic it's just they're on my iphone it's not magic they've just got my facebook password um that in my experience that's when that that empowering shift begins to happen um what are some people things can what what are some things people can do to empower themselves obviously OSE can't help everybody but if everybody could hear this podcast you know what are some things you would want someone in that situation to know? There really is no magic. That is really the bottom line. There's nothing in that. I know we're taking away all the super special powers and all, you know, we're boiling everything down that we do into something far beyond what I would call as simple, but there really is no magic sauce. Uh, you called out a situation or, you know, I think Chris did where, you know, a survivor lashes back. That happens. It happens a lot, you know, was I prepared the first time it happened? Absolutely not. And what did I tell that person? You know, I did the best at the time, which I thought, you know, if I look back on those things now, would I have told them the same thing? Probably not, or, or probably a slightly different way, or I would have said it slightly different. But I would say in general is working with people, you need to remember that they're, they're people, they're humans. You know, you have to give them the same type of respect that you would want to, that you would want to exhibit in daily life. And remember that they're incredibly vulnerable right now. They, at all points, unless they truly, truly say this to you during working with them, I always assume that they don't trust me and I still have to earn their trust every single time and every single interaction I go through. So I really try and boil it down to giving or almost trying to push them into doing it themselves without without me doing it. But at the same time, I will take the reins or take control and I'll try and steer and guide that conversation to you know doing that. And a good example is, 
I can't tell you how many people's computers that they've just let me on not know. You know, I'm just some guy on the internet. I'm just someone helping, right? They let me straight on their computer. And I and I, I step back and I say, hey, you know, this is what is going on here. I'm not saying this because I'm the bad actor here, but because I want you to understand it. And I would really honestly say that's that right there is the main point. It's education. Education and then giving them the whole, like all, all of the, the whole basket of eggs to say, no, I don't want you to do that. Or no, this isn't good. And then you following through and just saying, um, or or even going going to the point saying, are you comfortable doing this? But I would say empowerment is the biggest thing. If you if you didn't catch you know catch the kind of uh, me alluding it in a very horrible way, but empowering them to do super simple things or to learning learning relatively, or I shouldn't even say relatively hard concepts because most of the even the cybersecurity concepts are not difficult. It's just explaining them into a way to where they understand them and then they can apply them. And that's one thing. So I would say education and then empowerment are the two are the two largest things that I I pretty much try and push, you know, push everyone I try and help. I know it's not it's not super exciting. Everyone's like, oh, what's that one secret thing? I'm going to use it. You heard it. It's, it's education and empowerment. If you don't put the work in, you're not going to get anything back. So for I'm and I'll, I'll even say out. I'm super lazy and I automate everything. If I have to do it more than once or twice, I will I will spend 40 hours or a week automating it. So I never have to look at it again. So. A lot of this stuff, I will tell you, if you're the type of person that you think you wouldn't fit in this, you'd be very, very surprised how often I, I look back at me growing up inside of OSE and going, man, I was like, how did I get into this again? Or how, what made me go into here? And it was just, I like helping people. I like mm-hmm. teaching, apparently, and people like listening to me. So it's it worked out well. And I, and I will tell you, for those that are like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to get into that, like Chris pointed out, we, we take everyone, as long as you're a good human being that's really the only requirement or or if you're an alien cool you know if you're a good alien you know come on by but that's really the you know from lack of a better term it's really the only requirement you have to have a little bit of compassion and be willing to learn and even if you don't have those skills like that's another thing too that we push a lot in our volunteer side we have a lot of people in our ranks and our stables that have a lot of education they have a lot of talent there's a lot of teachers in there too so it's kind of a, a two-way street. Yeah, we get you to volunteer. You get to help people. You get to feel better about yourself. You get to help someone out in their life. But you can sit in there and turn it around like Tom did, you know, starting off in HR. And you can learn basically whatever you want. I'm willing to sit down with anyone. I will literally tell tell everyone that I talk to, if you want help with anything, I'll sit there and teach you. If I don't know it, I'll get you someone that does. But yeah, I, I know I've learned a lot from the uh, really smart people that I'm fortunate to work side by side with. Um, I think one of the things that, that Nick had kind of touched on that is really super important is when it comes to the education piece. I think that's one thing that we've been that we've been doing very, very well. Uh, instead of telling someone, oh, update your system or, oh, install this you know, software or pull this plug or cut this cord, whatever it is, uh, saying install this tool because it will do this and this is how it benefits you. Uh, change this setting because it allows someone to do this remotely. So when they understand what they're doing, rather than just, again, being told what to do or following a list of instructions, uh, it really helps them to feel like they're part of the process, but also understand that it's working. Uh, When you say this setting would allow someone to remotely connect to your device, here's how you turn it off. Then they say, oh, this this is stopping someone from using this method to connect to my device. Nice. I would say if I had maybe one one piece of advice just from my experience to give to 
anyone who is currently in a domestic violence situation, whether it has a tech angle or not, is tell someone until someone believes you. Find find someone that is going to believe that you are experiencing this situation. Um, once you do, I think it's going to empower you to start making more and more moves towards, you know, your inevitable escape and your inevitable safety. And then next, I would challenge anyone listening to this, be that believer. If, mm, if people yeah. talk about, oh, you know, I want to work with OSE, I want to do all these great things. Like, you don't have to volunteer with OSE to help someone in that situation. If you're, the, if you're that person that believes them, whether you'll ever know it or not, maybe you gave them that empowering spark that eventually got them to safety. So that would be maybe my two pieces of advice for people in those situations and people, you know, hearing about those situations. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think is always when I, when I had this realization of this fact, when I've shared this with people, um, it can really give something to think about where statistically it, it's one in four women and one in seven men will or have been a survivor of domestic violence. Uh, if you are in any sort of large group, a workplace, a school, a community, you're engaging with people that are most likely currently going through an abusive situation. Um, there have been people, I've had conversations with people that say, no, that's not true because no one's told me that they're in that situation. And I wonder why hasn't anyone told you? You've met people, so why don't you know it? So really to, to what you're saying, Tom, is that when you are that safe person, and when people know that you're that safe person, that compassionate person, that caring person, uh, you'll see it more often because people will trust you with that. And what do you do when they do? You believe them. Well, um, although you all are volunteers, you know, Trace Labs, we're all volunteers. Things still cost money for some reason. <laughs> so I believe that you all have a fundraising drive coming up. You want to speak to that? What a nice segue. Um, yes, we do. Uh, as an organization, much like Trace Labs, that we, we don't charge anything for our services. We don't, uh, we don't charge anything to our clients or to our partners or anyone else that we support. Um, so everything that we provide comes in the form of um, uh, grants, donations, or whatever, whatever funds we can get our hands on. Um, realistically, when it comes to, and this is a number that Tony uh, loves to share with me because it is a, an important number for us to remember, is when it comes to labor, when it comes to software costs, when it comes to tools that we provide, each person that we help costs us between twelve dollars and $25,000, depending on what services they need. Again, we're talking about labor, but we're also talking about the actual things that they need to, to have. Uh, and that's not including the costs of our infrastructure and our licenses and the other things that keep us doing what we do. Um, so fundraisers are kind of our lifeblood. So we do. We do have a very exciting fundraiser coming up with Trace Labs in which we are uh, partnering together, working together to uh, host a CTF. Um, and I'm drastically overplaying our role in it. This is really where Trace Labs excels in the CTF portion of it. Uh, but we do have some things that we want to bring to the table in terms of uh, videos and some other things that we're going to be making available. 
Um, but yeah, so it's uh, we're really excited about working with Trace Labs on this. We're really excited about being able to continue to partner with you on this and uh, really to raise awareness for both of our important missions. Yeah, so uh, our our CTF coming up this weekend. I apologize if you're listening to this like three years from now, <laughs> but uh, th- this is a time sensitive piece. Our CTF coming up this weekend will be donating um, half of our ticket sales to Operation Safe Escape. Um, mm-hmm. So very very excited to be a part of that. Um, I'm excited to see the content that Safe Escape puts together um, for the for the attendees of our CTF. Um, I'm always thrilled by the people that come out to support OSE. So I'm looking forward to the the content that you all put together. Um, the good news is that you don't have to compete in a Trace Lab CTF to support OSE financially. Um, I'll drop some links down in the show notes. Um, people can donate anytime. And whether it's a dollar or $10,000, um, every little bit counts. And, and every little bit goes directly towards helping people stay safe and, and escape their situation. Okay. And that was the safe escape team operation, safe escape. I always appreciate our time together. I'm always impressed. It's been very nice seeing the organization mature and grow over the last several years. Um, I'll be sure to drop down in the show notes, ways to get involved, ways to donate all the relevant links. Um, thank you all. If you're participating in the CTF this weekend, um, none of the work any of these organizations do would be possible if it wasn't for people giving, giving time, giving money, just giving retweets. Uh, we appreciate everything that you all give and I hope to see you this weekend. This has been another episode of Breadcrumbs. If you'd like to learn more, you can find us online at tracelabs.org on Twitter, at Trace Labs. But if you really want to find us, just follow the breadcrumbs. 